Well, good morning. Good morning. Three of you are saying good morning. That's good. Um, the sheet that I gave you, take a look at it real quickly. Uh, I found this. Uh, oh, I forget when I found it. But I thought of you guys because uh, it somewhat summarizes some of the uh, thoughts that are in Peter, uh, the book that we're studying. Um, and really, in some ways, the whole New Testament. But um, let's just take a look at it with me. It's anonymous. I do not know who wrote this. I guarantee you I didn't. So I'm just not sure who wrote it. So if you ever use it, you know, you can say the same thing. You're not sure who wrote it. But anyway, just think about this for a moment, because it really does summarize some of the things we've been studying in First Peter. Watch your thoughts, for they become words which is certainly true. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. And watch your character, it becomes destiny. It's, um, we've talked about this before. I know you, if you've been with me for a couple of years, I often refer to James chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Sin begins with the thought, becomes a desire, and leads to an action. And that consistent teaching of the scriptures, your thought life is very important to God, but your thought life is up to you, how you are going to handle that. Are you going to fill your mind with the thoughts of God or fill your mind with the thoughts of other things? It's not that the other things are necessarily evil, it's just we have to have a strategy for holiness a strategy for holiness in our lives, and that strategy begins with our thought life. Now, you can do with this whatever you want, but it's uh, it's something that I have used in uh, my pastoral counseling, as I'm not a therapist, but in pastoral counseling, and with my students and with my children, that your thought life is very, very important, and that's where we begin to put that strategy for holiness together. So this is just a reminder of it, because that's, in, in many ways, that little, she has not rocket science. That's something we learn, it's something we observe, but it's also something for which we need to take the responsibility. So, all right? Mm-hmm. As Forrest Gump said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> we're in uh, the second chapter of Peter. First uh, Peter is what we're studying, as you know. And I want to pick up with uh, verse 18. Now let's just uh, remind one another of this larger uh, context of this particular section if you're following in your outline um, material to page 6. But what Peter is addressing now is part of the the life change, the transformation that God brings into our lives as we walk with him in obedience. And he's talking here about that duty and I kind of like to use that term, sort of an ethical word, but our ethical duty, our ethical obligation of submitting. And it it takes us back to verse 13. Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's how the ESV translates that, and and I like that very much. And the first one we looked at, uh, really almost two weeks we looked at it, is government, governing authorities, political authorities, and so on. Now, the second one, which is where we are this morning, is in verse 18. Um, And I want to put it in 21st century context. In the workplace. I mean, uh, Peter is addressing, which you know this, but I'll just remind you of it. The primary economic relationship of the ancient world was slave to master. Um, I mean, there were day laborers, but... Any kind, of, any kind of main arrangement of, of, of employer to employee was slave-to-master relationship. Uh, and that was very complicated because there were so many ways in which you could go into slavery. Um, it, it was not anything like the American South before the Civil War, which was racial and chattel. That is not the way it was practiced in the ancient world. You could go in and out of slavery three or four times in your life. It could be related to debt. You can't pay your debts. Uh, you would go into slavery to pay that debt off, which, you know, 
most of us think is kind of a ridiculous way to deal with things, but that is how that occurred in the ancient world. So I'm, I'm just I'm saying all this because for you and for me to understand the economic relationship of the ancient world is very difficult. So when we see the word servant, uh, you could translate that uh, house servant or bond servant or house slave. I mean, there's so many ways to translate that particular Greek word. But it is estimated, and it is really difficult to be accurate because nobody was taking a detailed census at that level. It's estimated that of the 100 million people that inhabited the Mediterranean Empire of Rome, about 60 million were slaves. And so that's, you know, that's just an extraordinary number for me. But you're talking about in terms of a work relationship, slave to employer type thing, about 60% of the people were in some kind of bondage. Again, don't think necessarily of what it was like before the Civil War in the South, but it's, it, that was the arrangement. That, that was the way things got done. And um, Peter then is addressing something that, for me personally, is really difficult. Because saying to a slave, be subject to your masters with all respect, which is how the ESV translates that. I mean, just think about that. Instead of being a rebel, instead of picking up a spear or a knife or a stiletto with the intent of running your master through and killing him, treat him with respect. Treat him with the, the Greek word there, actually, that, that ESV translates respect is phobos. We get our word fear from that. So you get a sense, again, that, that phobos, that fear, is a respect all uh, type of response. So treat your master with respect, with dignity, with honor. Does anybody want to respond to that? <laughs> well, the, the, in present-day context, <clears throat> credit card debt is, is the master. Yeah, well, that's a whole other yes. Yeah. And that's where people Man. put themselves into bondage. Yeah. And so, wondering maybe these sixty thousand in the in the old times, maybe they weren't prudent with the management of their resources and their finances and stuff, and, and that's how they ended up in, in debt. Well, that that could that could be. I mean, some of the there were so many different ways people could go into slavery in the ancient yeah. world. But one of them was if you did could not or did not pay your debts, you you would go into that kind of way. that was almost more like an indentured servitude arrangement. You would work at all, seven years, nine years, eleven years. Um, so yes, uh, Daryl, you. How would this flesh itself out as far as um, being in a special worship service with Paul leading it? Would they have to sit in different places? That's a great question. You know, uh, as you know, in the typical first century you went to church at a house. It was a house church. It was relatively small, maybe the size of a room like this, maybe a little larger. And, you know, Darrow, as far as we know, and some of this is in the New Testament, uh, the slaves and the masters and their families would sit together. They didn't segregate. Paul would teach, and now Peter would teach the same thing, but Paul would teach in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is no slave, free, male, female, bonded, and all are equal at the cross. And that's one of the, and, and again, people who don't even care about Christianity make this observation that genuine biblical Christianity in the first two centuries, the first two centuries of its history, in other words, was the great leveler. Do you know what that means, the great leveler? It, I mean, it didn't change anything I mean, in terms of the basic societal relationship. But in the church, in Christ, it was the great leveler. Everybody comes to Christ in the same way. Uh, at the, as, as one writer put it, at the cross, everybody's equal. And so there was nothing like that. There was nothing like that in the ancient world. There was no other force in the ancient world that was like that. And to add to that, in, in, in a similar, and it's very poignant in our century, but in a similar way was how liberating it was, how loving it was for women. I mean, Christianity, I mean, Jesus modeled that. And if you 
especially study the Gospel of Luke. Luke does more in bringing out the role of women and the, the way Jesus reached out to women than any of the other Gospel writers. Because you're showing again that in Christ, in Christ, everybody's equal at the cross. I'm not talking about social or economic equality. That's not the point. But at the cross, everybody's equal. And so it, it was a remark. And two Roman historians who, I mean, wrote about the history of Rome, and they would comment on Christianity in the second century. That was one of the things they were astonished at. They were just astonished at this. That in, in the church, as they would meet, you would see slaves sitting next to their masters worshiping. You would see women next to their husbands worshiping. Which there was nothing else in the ancient world. There was nothing else in the, no other institutions that, where you saw that except the church. And so, it, it, I mean, it is, the, the Bible does not preach revolution. But the Bible preaches transformation in Christ brings social change. So the axiom seems to be, you want to change culture? Let Christ change people, and that will change culture. And you, you know that, I mean, I'm sure all of you have, whatever your depths of understanding of history, know that in Western civilization, the great social movements that brought significant social change were hatched by Christians. Whether it's William Wilberforce and slavery in the British Empire, or the abolitionist movement in the American South, well, North and South, uh, in the 1800s, they they were all those leaders were all converts from the Second Great Awakening. I mean, it's just it, it's 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 something to really just observe in history. Rodney Stark, who's an historian at, at Baylor, has written two books on this subject. An, uh, an historian from the University of Illinois has written a book called Under the Influence, in which he charts the profound, the profound change Christianity has brought to Western civilization. And he charts it over 2,000 years. And it's just, you know, people who don't even care about what you and I regard as sacred and important make that observation. Because you can't deny it. I mean, you can't ignore it. And so when, when Peter is saying this, similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3, they're talking about something that when this kind of behavior and transformation occurs, it's going to change that institution. So, um, I mean, Daryl and I had this all planned, that he would segue to this large. <laughs> I, I thought he was talking about a special service, and they asked those that wanted to be healed in a certain place. Come forward. No, that's not what it was. How would they? How would they be together in a worship service? Would they have to sit separately, or those different classes? Yeah, I think that's a different class. Okay. So I need you to tie one thing to me. So if you're talking about they're all equal at the cross, why is Paul so specific about the role of women relative to leadership within the church? When a year you're observing something that is always important to remember um, in the way God sets things up. Uh, there is a difference between our position in Christ and our role in the institutions that God has created. In the position, our position in Christ, i just use my wife, Peggy and I are equal. Equal at the cross, equal in the image bearers of, of God, Galatians 1, and equal as joint heirs with Christ. Uh, Peter mentions that in first, uh, Peter 3, verse 7. But the issue isn't equality. The issue is role. Are there role responsibilities that are assigned to a man, to a woman, in the home? And it's, I always, I, I, you know, these things don't happen anymore because the debate's over in our culture, but... I was involved in, oh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight panel discussions, and those panel discussions were over issues dealing with feminist uh, cultural issues. And uh, I w when I was invited, I was, was invited as kind of the token evangelical. <laughs> you know, you're going to say something, we just want to hear what the other, and I would always say, it was, always, it was somewhat fun because it would always shock them. I would, I, the very first remarks I would make is, okay, I want to stipulate equality between a male and a, and a female in Christ. I want to stipulate 
equality of a husband and wife. I want to stipulate the equality of an employer-employee. Because the issue is an equality, and I would cite those passages I just cited, you know, image bearer, or intercross, join heirs. The issue is role responsibility. And what the Bible is interested in is the question, to whom does God give primary responsibility for leadership in the home? I mean, if you just honestly read the scriptures, God is assigning primary responsibility to the husband. Now, you know, well, but what, that means the wife is unequal. No, that's not what it's saying. The wife is inferior. That's not what it's saying. As a matter of fact, what it's saying is if something goes wrong in the home, whom does God hold responsible? The husband. So, I mean, I have a whole series of things I've, I've worked on in this. But it's the same way then in the church. Okay, in the church, everyone in the church, regardless of whatever they do, however they look at themselves, whether they're a senior pastor or just a regular tender or whatever, they're equal to cross. But are there role responsibilities? First Timothy chapter 2 seems to indicate rather clearly that the proclamation of the word of God faithfully, in, a, in a, we'll use our language today, in a senior pastor role is for a man. Does that mean a woman can't be on staff? No, that's not what it's saying. Does that mean a woman can't teach? Sunday school? No, that's not what it's saying. Because a woman, a woman can't be the director of a Christian ed program. That's not what it's saying. But it seems to be saying that God is assigning a man as the primary responsibility to be the proclaimer of the word of God in public setting. Now, it's amazing today that's controversial for 1975 years that was not controversial I mean, it really wasn't but now it's controversial and it's more controversial and so on um, Tim Keller one of my favorite writers was designated to get a very prestigious award from Princeton Theological Seminary because Princeton is an historic Presbyterian seminary and Keller pastor of Presbyterian Church. When he was designated to get that award, a group of very, I don't know what else to call them, but radical, liberal folks in that denomination protested, and he was ultimately denied that award because he preaches male responsibility in the home and in the church. And he, they, they took that award back from him. Which, I mean, I just, I, 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 when I read about that, I just thought, oh my goodness. They can't, can't, can't we agree to disagree on certain things and still honor someone like Tim Keller, who has, a, has had a profound impact on the church in the late 20th and early 21st century? No, because he preached, and this is how this one Presbyterian <laughs> theologian who's a woman at the seminary, he preaches male domination. That is not what he preaches. But in his incredibly gracious manner, his humble manner, he said, I understand why this is controversial, and I'm willing to accept it. I'm not interested in human rewards. If God is pleased with what I do, he will bless what I do. And that's how he ended it. I mean, that's, what a magnanimous way to handle that. Instead of protesting and holding demonstrations, you know, getting people to march in the streets of, of, of where Princeton... No, he didn't do any of that. He graciously and humbly accepted it. Right. So that's what this, this radical person heard. And it just brings to mind the, the saying, I can explain it to you, but I cannot comprehend it for you. <laughs> yes, yes. And I'm pretty sure I might be wrong, because I really don't know, other than her name, I really don't know anything about her. But I'm fairly certain she's never attended one of his services, never heard him preach, never spent much time. Oh, anyway. Can we get to the Bible now? <laughs> Did you have a question? Did you have question, Woody? Are you sure? I mean, I, no. I, I didn't want to. I, I, if I missed your hand, I didn't want to. Glenn had a question. He said, "Is it all right if Jim goes ahead?" And I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. I've already commented on that. It really is the Greek word phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, which is, you could translate that with fear. But when you translate it that way, that doesn't communicate the real sense of the word with respect, with dignity, not only to the good and gentle, meaning not only not only to your masters, your bosses who are good and gentle, gentle could be translated considerate, but also to the unjust. The Greek word there could be translated to the crooked, to the perverse. So even to a corrupt, perverse boss. Harsh, yep, that would that would work. That would work. It's just it's trying to contrast, regardless of their temperament, you have a responsibility to treat them with respect. Now I want you you gotta go back to the big, big picture of how we've talked about this. God is a God who sets up institutions. Institutions which promote order and institutions which report uh, uh, stability. God is not interested in social revolution per se. That doesn't mean justice and values are not important to him. But it is your responsibility as Christians, a servant, a slave, an employee, to respond with respect. Now I want to comment on some of that in just a minute in terms of are there any exceptions to that. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing to do. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter does something that no other New Testament writer does in addressing the subject of an employer-employee or workplace-type relationship. He says, this magnifies your grace because you're mindful of God. God, uh, Peter's connecting grace and being conscious, mindful of, aware of God. Now, Paul adds something here, and that's what I want to go to right now. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, if you want to turn over there. Paul adds a perspective on this that is very important. Who is your real boss? That wasn't rhetorical. Who is your real boss? Jesus Christ is your real boss. So go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, and, and it's, there are four verses there. This is a very uh, complementary, cross-reference type of passage. Paul is adding a little bit more of a detail. What does, what does my relationship with my boss, based on respect, look like? What does my relationship with my boss and my work in that workplace that is gracious, mindful of God, look like? So Peter lays out the axiom. Paul describes what it looks like. Do you understand what I'm doing here? Because Peter's, as you're going to see in a couple of seconds, Peter's interested in going somewhere else with this because he wants to talk about Christ and and what he modeled for us. But Peter's laying down the principle. Treat your boss with respect. Be gracious because you're always mindful of God. All right, what does that look like? Verse 22 of Colossians 3. Slaves, it's the same word there. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, <clears throat> Excuse me, fearing the Lord. Yeah, fearing there is phobos. It's the same word that you see in verse 18 of 1 Peter. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Verse 24, because you know, it's a causal participle, because you know that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
So what Paul does in Galatians 3, 22, 23, and 24 is describes what this kind of attitude that Peter is calling us to have looks like. He fleshes it out. So if you look at 22 and 23, what are some of the words that describe a, a being submissive to your master, your boss, your employer? Obedience. See that? Verse 22. Not with external service as merely to please men. What does that mean? Even when your boss isn't looking, you're still working. You're still being very faithful. And then with sincerity of the heart. Sincerity of the heart. You really mean this. Heart is the center of the will. Fearing the Lord. Now that's really powerful. Fearing the Lord. Because you, I, I've talked about this before. When the Lord is the subject, fear as a verb means it's a worship word. So what is Paul saying? Work is a form of worship. Because worship is you're offering something to the Lord. You come and you... You present your offerings every Sunday, you know, in the offering basket. You're presenting that to the Lord. You you uh, you offer prayers to the Lord. You're presenting this to the Lord. You sing worship. You sing songs and so on. You're offering this to the Lord as worship. So Paul's using exactly the same phrase here. Your work is a form of worship. You're offering it to the Lord. So therefore, excellence. You do your best. You are consistent, whether your boss is watching or not. Because who is watching? Jesus is watching. You see, can you imagine what would happen if every worker and every boss in the United States of America looked at it this way? What would happen to productivity? I mean, go through the roof. What would happen to the quality? Through the roof. What would happen in personal relationships? Unimaginable. But you see, that is the whole point Peter is making and the whole point Paul is making. You are transformed people who live a transformed life. And you see it not Sunday morning at 11 a.m. You see it Monday morning at 8 a.m. as well. And then this very, very powerful thought, verse 24, back to Colossians 3 now, verse 23, there, 24, there is an eternal dimension to work because you know that the Lord from the Lord you receive a reward of your inheritance now, I I don't this idea of rewards is a very complicated and, and somewhat uh, controversial idea what does that mean what are the rewards if, I, if you don't mind I'm, not, I'm just going to set that aside I want to deal with that but just simply simply the idea that this is eternally significant to the Lord, and he's going to reward you for it. And then notice it's the only time this is used in the New Testament, the end of verse 24. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Lord is all over the place. Christ is all over the place. Lord Jesus Christ, all over the place. Christ Jesus the Lord, all over the place. But Lord Christ is the only time it's used in the New Testament. Because Lord is Kurios. Christ is Messiah. It is Kurios Messiah. It is the Lord, the boss, the sovereign whom you serve. So you could conclude from the end of verse 24 of Colossians 3, who is your real boss? Jesus says. Again, both Paul explaining what respecting your master, being subject to him, etc., what does that look like? Whether he's good and gentle or unjust. The gracious thing to do, always mindful of God. Paul's just explained to us what that looks like. Any questions? Got it? Go thou and do likewise. No. But I mean, honestly, this, this is transformational. I mean, this is transformational kind of a language. This is what the transformed life looks like in the workplace. All right, any questions? I mean, this is, this is really, this is powerful stuff. This is why the early church made such an impact on the Roman Empire. Now, 
if there are no questions and everybody's with me, I want to know, go back to Peter, and I want to look, because Peter, Peter's doing something with this. And he wants to bring in something rather unique. So let's go back. Verse 19, mindful of God, one who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Okay. Peter acknowledges something. I'm explaining to you God's ideal. Paul fleshes out him more fully for us. But he says, many of you in the workplace will suffer unjustly. You will endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So he recognizes that. The workplace, this is a slave-master relationship, the workplace is going to be a place where there are inequities, where it's unjust, where your boss isn't going to be fair. He's going to treat your colleague much better than treat you, and you can't figure out why. Or he's going to, he's going to be incredibly mean and, and ruthless towards you when you do something, and the guy next to you do you the same, and he doesn't treat him like that. And, I mean, I'm just using crazy examples, but... So what do you do? Revenge? Bring a stiletto to work the next day and run him through? No. Endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now listen, what Peter is doing with this, and you'll see this work out in the next couple of verses, he's going to say, you are to model Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He endured suffering, sorrow, unjustly. That's the nature of this fallen, broken world. And Jesus models for us how we should live in this kind of situation. I saw a hand somewhere. Glenn. Is it significant that in Colossians, uh, you didn't, one verse you didn't cover was, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I, I, you know, I don't always know why the Holy Spirit inspires these guys to write a little bit differently. You're right. I did, I did not address verse 25 in Colossians 3 because there Paul does bring out the accountability of those who do wrong, those who do not. I mean, the Lord knows that, and the Lord deals with that. And the Lord is never, he is never partial. He's always impartial. But in a way, it's also a caution. It is a caution. It, well, that's right. No, absolutely. It's a very, very much a caution. Absolutely. That's right. But I don't, I don't read that in Peter's Yeah, and I, I, I honestly, I, I just don't know. I, I can't tell you why Peter does not address it. I, I just don't know. Uh, well, he's, he is really wrong. And, if he, and if he needs to talk to my wife, and she will convince him. <laughs> That whatever assumption he has in that area is really, and then if you really want to talk to my kids, then you'll really discover that that assumption you have is wrong. But again, I think part of it, Glenn, and part of it is because Peter is working his way toward Jesus here. And how Jesus lived where with thoroughgoing injustice in his life. How did he respond in that kind of situation? I guess what I like about Peter's voice is it's very intimate. It's one one one. That's a good comment. That's a good comment. That's right. Good comment. So, now, verse 20. Verse 20 is almost an in-your-face kind of verse. For what credit, the Greek word there is kleos, you could translate that fame or glory or noteworthiness, is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. So, you know, okay, he's talking about in the workplace and a, you know, a, a slave or whatever who's beaten for what you endure it. Right? And, and Peter's saying, big deal. Big deal. You did something was wrong, 
and your boss called you to account, and in the ancient world, a slave, he beat you. And you endure that. Big deal. And that's an in-your-face kind of statement. Uh, okay. Now, what are you doing with that? In the middle of the verse. But if you do good and suffer for it, also endure. For this is the gracious thing in the sight of God. What is he saying? Bosses are unfair. Bosses are very partial. Bosses will do very unjust things. And a gracious thing to do in the sight of God is not murder them, but endure. Now, he's working his way toward the example of Jesus. Now, I saw a hand. I want to, I want to address something here in a minute. I, don't, I just don't know if this is correct or not, but I once knew a wonderful woman and her husband, but this woman happened to be Catherine, and she used the phrase, if she was going through some suffering or some mishap or something, she would use the phrase, she was offering it up to God. She would offer it up to the Lord. Mm. Uh, I don't know where that's at, but uh, she was enduring some pain and offering it to the Lord. Is that, that be I think that's a, I don't know, I don't know any of the specifics of the circumstances, Woody, but as a phrase or as, an, as a concept, that's biblical. I mean, it really is. You're offering it to the Lord. You're giving it to the Lord. You're, you're presenting it to the Lord. That, that, that's not an unbiblical way or a, a dishonoring way to think about something like that. Again, I don't know any of the circumstances, so I don't know what all she means by that. But as it, conceptually, that is not an unbiblical way to look at it. I mean, the Apostle Paul a couple of times speaks about presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. And that's in its totality, regardless of whatever the situation is. Now, I want to go down a bunny trail for just a minute. Peter doesn't address this here. It is addressed in other parts of the Bible. But let's just, so I don't have to keep doing this every time we address an issue. We are, we are instructed in the Bible. Was there something I, okay, I missed? Just, just put a tail on, on what Woody had said. I think what the, what the woman was saying when she uh, offered it up to the Lord, right. was she was acknowledging her dependence on God. Oh, absolutely. And, and, uh, and, uh, and subjecting herself to that dependence and, and reemphasizing her position. And her right. Dependence on oh, I totally agree. But that's why, I mean, as a, as a concept, that's a healthy concept. And, and what you just were reading about whether someone was correct or treated badly because at, in doing right, they were suffering... The Lord suffered for us. Now, I, I want to go down a little bunny trail here, uh, and it's one that's in other parts of Scripture, but I think it's appropriate to bring it in here so that you fold it into your total biblical understanding of this admonition that we are to be in submission to authority. You know, whether you're talking about the state, whether you're talking about your church leaders, Hebrews 13 says that, or whether you're talking about the submission responsibilities within family, or in this case, in the employer-employee, or in other words, in the workplace. The question I want to pose to you is, and this is a, it's an ethical question, but it's an important biblical question, is our submission to authority, regardless of whatever it is, government, church, etc., is our submission to authority an absolute? No. Wow. Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there, there is a, there's an illustration that's very appropriate. So let's try to, and so you're absolutely right. This, this admonition, this exhortation, this command to be in submission to all human institutions, that's how Peter puts it, submission to authority in our lives, is this an absolute? It is not. The caveat here is, you submit to authority, you obey authority, etc. And this is the principle I came up with. 
You submit to authority until it's a sin to submit to authority. So, if you're, you're, you're in a situation of the state, you're a soldier, and uh, you have been drafted into the Nazi SS in 1940, and your commanding officer says, uh, we're hoarding up a group of Jews from this town, we're going to take them out to this pit, and I want you to shoot them all. Submit to authority. It's a command. If you're a Christian, and your real boss, your real leader is Jesus, does he hold you accountable for submitting to that authority? Because would you agree to shoot a bunch of Jews and put them in a pit is a sin. It's not combat. This is, you know, all those issues. So what I'm saying to you is this creates, this creates what is in the Bible both as teaching, in Romans 13 and Acts 4 and so on, it's a teaching, but it's also in the narratives, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel in chapter 1 of Daniel, all this where I submit, but if it violates a clear ethical standard of God, I cannot obey. I cannot submit. But then there's always this corollary. What is it? You may have to pay the consequence of that. Do you remember, this is a, this is a real familiar one. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4? I think it's in 3 too, but 3 and 4. The, the leadership in Jerusalem said to Peter and John, when you're out in Jerusalem, do not preach Christ. We don't want you walking down the street telling people about Jesus as the Messiah. That's a clear command. Did Peter and John obey that command? No. They go out in the streets of Jerusalem and preaching about Jesus, telling everybody about Jesus. What happened to them? They ended up in jail. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are ordered to bow down to this new golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. And if you don't bow down, you're going to be killed by the state. Sorry, you can't bow down. And they end up in the fiery furnace. Remember all that? So I'm saying that the, the thing about this is that really it, it's, there's some very clear lines of demarcation, but there's some where it's maybe not as clear. Where it's you, you, you your issue of conscience enters into it and so on. But what the Bible seems to say, God establishes authority in our life, governmental authority, religious authority, family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our responsibility as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of the Lord, is a lifestyle submission. But this lifestyle submission is not an absolute. Because authorities can command you to do something that clearly, without any question, violates an ethical standard of God. Are you an obligation, under obligation then to obey? No. Will you perhaps have to pay the consequences for that disobedience? Yes. And that, to a degree, is where Peter's going with this. Because you may suffer unjustly, but you may also suffer justly because you are following Christ and not man. And so you have this, you have this, if I use the word caveat, do you know what I mean? You have this caveat to what the Bible is teaching and what Peter is clearly teaching. And so that doesn't, therefore, mean that Jesus is allowing us to participate in political revolutions where we assassinate our leaders. But at the same time, he's saying, and this certainly is what Dr. Martin Luther King argued, uh, if you know anything about it, he argued his position of civil disobedience from Scripture. I mean, that, that is really true. If you read his letter from Birmingham jail, when he was thrown in jail in Birmingham, that's one of the most masterful things I've ever read. You may or may not agree with everything he did. I don't agree with everything he did. But his whole position of leading, leading against, in the civil rights movement, leading against the laws of segregation, which I hope any Christian would regard as, as offensive to the Lord. That, that's not something we could hold to. And what he did is he made it, then unfortunately so many other leaders took it way beyond that. The Black Power Movement and all those other things, unfortunately. But his initial position was based on Scripture. 
And it's really, it's, it's quite a significant, it's the same thing that a lot of others in the history, it's just more recent history, that's one I thought you would maybe know about. And so it, it creates uh, lots of issues because there are going to be other issues that are going to be a little more, little more nuanced, a little more difficult. I've, I've known two women that were in situations like this. They were in situations where their hospital performed abortions. And they got on that team to perform abortions as a nurse, and they made the decision, I can't do this. And in both cases, they lost their jobs. Hmm. Now today, they're... You know, fortunately, the government has has stepped in, and there are some protections for those kinds of things, uh, where you do not necessarily have to lose your job. But you know, still, there are a lot of areas where, as a Christian, you say, "This is somewhere I'm going to draw my line. My conscience is just—I I just can't do this." Where are you willing to suffer the consequences of not doing it? Yes, I am. Well, then you're no longer going to work here. Whatever the case might be. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein's situation is you know, that, you know, an egregious, horrific example. But there's, you know, honestly, as men, I'm sure you guys recognize that. There are a lot of men that I've known over the years who treat women as objects. And they're always floating terrible jokes and saying things about their body. And I remember one, I, this is... I mean, I can still I can still hear him. I heard him say that a dozen times in a lunchroom. Women walk in. He says, "Hey, come over here and sit in my lap, and let's let's talk about the first thing that comes up." I mean, just think of that. Yeah. So that's sexual harassment. That's treating a woman as an object, and no Christian should do that. And so, now Harvey Weinstein's way beyond something like that. But that kind of that kind of talk, that kind of of language, that kind of derision, that kind of humor, should never come out of a Christian man's mouth. And you and I should say, you know, that's just something that we we don't want to be a part of. Because a woman is equal to you at the cross. A woman is creating the image of God. And I just, well, I'll go down that one more step. That's why Hugh Hefner just died. Hugh Hefner, to me, was a indeed a moral revolutionary, but a moral revolutionary for evil, because he enhanced the objectification of women. That means treating a woman as an object, and that's 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 horrible. And I mean, there are the kind of things that we may have to stand against and say that's just not right, not because I'm a member of the feminist movement, but because of how God declares I'm to look at a woman. Whether it's my wife, whom I treasure, or whether it's just any other one. I'm not going to treat her with respect as an object. And that uh, there is something to that. And although we would object to some of the people and some of the things that are being said, for the most part, that kind of a lifestyle is not something me and I should have anything to do with. All right. Oh, and I got into all that. The, I was trying to interjects, Peter doesn't deal with it here, that the Bible does set a limit to our obedience and submission. And that limit is if you're being asked to do something that violates a moral standard of God, you are not under obligation to submit to that. But you may have to pay the consequences. Rob? Are you simply at liberty to disobey the unjust rule, or are you obligated to disobey it through God's law? Well, it depends on the Christian ethicist you read. Uh, I, I don't know, Rob, if I would use the word you're under obligation to disobey it. Uh, that's strong. But um, it is something that you really do need to consider in your response to something like that. There were many Christians during the Nazi era who stood up against the, what the Nazis were doing to Jews, and there were many who did not. Uh, in the early church, uh, the first two centuries of the early church, there were many, many Christians who were martyred 
But there are also many Christians who, to preserve their life or the life of their children or whatever, would temporarily renounce Christ. I was thinking that in the modern day setting, that's fourteen hundred years old too, but the modern day setting facing um, radical mostly called radical <coughs> that will give you the three choices. Convert subjugator, lose your sure. And Historically, and even today, uh, it happens. You know, there are people who will submit, and there are people who say, no, I can't. And when ISIS was a power, they'd lose their heads. Look at verse, the next verse now. Verse 21 is now, he has reached the apex of what he's arguing. He's reached the main point. Verse 21, for to this... Now, this is a demonstrative pronoun. To what is it referring? <coughs> endure. For to endure, whether it's unjust or just, to endure is what you've been called to do. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, a pattern, an archetype, so that you might follow in his steps. Did Jesus endure unjust suffering? Yes. Was Jesus treated unjustly? Yes. I mean, you, I mean, all of those questions you could start answering. And so Peter is saying, as Jesus endured, you endure. Now, there's one other point that Peter doesn't bring up here, but... Paul and Jesus indeed brings us up too. When you're treated unjustly, unfairly, your initial response should not be vengeance. What does Jesus say? He's quoting from the Old Testament and Paul quotes Jesus. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, I mean, he's just all these complicated little nuances here to how we live and respond to injustice and unfairness and inequity. What Peter is saying is always consider the example of Jesus. Did Jesus endure injustice? Yes. Did Jesus endure sorrow for us? Yes. And he's saying he is an example for us. He is a pattern for us in this kind of a relationship. Verse 22, this you know, he's just summarizing. He, meaning Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found at his mouth. When he was reviled, revile means abused, insulted, that's what that word means. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's the him? The Father. He submitted to the Father who judges unjustly. He himself bore our sins on the tree, i.e. the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, rare time that's used of Jesus, the overseer of your souls, literally the episkopos, the bishop, the guardian of your souls. So there's a lot there. A lot of that is just summarizing Lord Jesus during Passion Week, suffering what he endured during Passion Week, being reviled, suffering, all of the things, and yet all this, he didn't sin. He didn't commit any sin. So what what do we draw from this? Why is Peter, why is Peter bringing in all of this about Jesus? I mean, for goodness sakes, he starts with verse 21 and goes through the end of the chapter and focuses on Jesus as our example. What what is he what is he what's the main point he wants us to get from this? How does this change us? 
in how we live our lives. I think you, you know, in the preface, the forward, again, I'll go back to that. He was speaking this because they had been subjected to some, some uh, really unfair treatment and they were going to be tortured and fed to the lions and all that. Tough times to come. Trying to alert them to this and reminding them of how Jesus suffered for them. Yes. No, that's wrong. Any other thoughts on this? Any other comments on this? I, mean, I think he was teaching them a different way of being human. A, a different way of being human? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's, that's good. Any other? See, I, what I'm trying to get you to do is think, how does this affect me in 2017? Because you and I aren't slaves. You and I aren't, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know what your workplace situation was or is even now, but we're not in the kind of a situation where our masters are ruthlessly unjust and unfair, and they beat us, you know, whether we deserve it or not, and all those things. But how do we take what Peter is saying and apply it to our lives in 2017 in the workplace? Because that's the context. This is the workplace. You see what I'm saying? What, how, do you, how do you take all this? I mean, it's theological. It sounds so spiritual, bringing in Jesus. But what's the bottom line? And what, you walk out of the room today. What's your takeaway from this? What have you learned here that will change you? That's what I'm trying to get you to think about. Daryl, was your hand up? Yeah, it was. How, how do you discern and determine what you're willing to die for? Mm. Uh, Good comment. use two illustrations here. If we're gonna, if we're gonna say be opposed to somebody saying that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, yeah, that's is that I change it to a question? Is that something we should mm. stand up for as compared to um, you have her, uh, about uh, women being used as objects? Are you willing to die for that and be willing to be fired for that? Yeah. Good. That's good. Well, see, that's it. This is where this, I brought up that issue of conscience. It's where this, what am I willing to die for? If I'm in a Muslim country and they're saying to me, you must deny the deity of Christ, that he's the son of God who died on the cross for sin. And if you don't do that, we're going to chop your head off. Yeah, I mean, that's what the early church, they faced that. And they decided, many of them, thousands of them, to be martyrs. And I mean, that's a, that's a very, very appropriate way to ask us question. What am I willing to die for? What what is really important in this kind of a uh, this kind of a context? I saw another friend. No. My summarization would be that God's authority is supreme. And man's authority cannot supersede God. So. It's, like you said, you, you can refuse to follow the master, your, your, your boss, and, and exercise your ethic, your Christian ethic, but there's a consequence. For, for every action, there's a reaction, and there's a, there could be a consequence, and you could lose a job. You know? That's right. Um, but, but then God, Peter says, in God's eyes, you've done a, a good thing. Okay, you're, you're really, you're getting into the area where I, I think this does hit us. Are we asked sometimes to do unethical things in the workplace? Depends on where you work. Well, it depends on where you work. It does. But I'm just using it broadly. Can you envision being asked to do unethical things that clearly violate a standard? And if what Paul said and what Peter is saying, your real boss is Jesus, then you have to make a decision. And what I mean, that's and because I've I've been around over the years of my ministry, I've been with a lot of men and a lot of men in business and in and attorneys at firms and so on. And 
often it's an, not in a group like this, but it's in confidence. Where God will take me for coffee or take me lunch. I'm facing something. You brought this up in class. I'm facing something. And this is what I'm facing. What should I do? Didn't want to bring it up in the group. But where my boss is asking me, one guy was a banker. My boss was asking me to do something that I regarded as unethical. You know, Wells Fargo, I don't know if you read about that oh, scandal geez. of what Wells Fargo went through. You know, and what they were doing to try to, you know, inflate the numbers and accounts and all that stuff. I mean, they were clearly doing something not only blatantly unethical, but it's illegal. But, I mean, it's that kind of thing. So if you're in that banking team and you're being asked to do that, you know, create false accounts just to inflate the numbers for that month. What do you do? See, this in a way, this is kind of what Peter's getting at. What do you do in a situation like that? Are you willing, you endure, do you endure it and just keep your eyes closed and don't ignore it? Or do you endure the possibility that you're saying, I can't do this? In that circumstance, they had issues with attrition in the sales force because they would not, the employees would not do that and they left. Yeah, a lot of people, that's right. I mean, there were, but I mean, there were a lot of people that still did it. But what I'm saying, this guy, I just use that as a specific example. But, uh, you know, if you're an accountant and your boss is saying, I want you to hide this specific account, because if it's in the public statements, it's going to show we're doing something fraudulent, so I want you to hide this. I think in today's workplace, we absolutely look at some businesses, and I know I look at the attrition rate within a business, and that's absolutely a tell mm. as to whether they're an ethical company or not. Wow. Wow. It's just... you. I, all I'm asking you to do is just consider specifically for me in my life by a Sorry, no, that's all right. in my life, how do I take what Peter's saying and apply it to my life? You may you may be so fortunate you've never ever faced like anything like this, and you never will face anything like this. You know, I'm not talking about in a political situation <coughs> or a Muslim country. That, those are very important and very real situations. I'm talking, because Peter's talking about this in the workplace. That's the context of it. And that's what I'm asking you to just think about. And it's just the kind of thing, Lord, help me to be the man of God who represents integrity and righteousness and your standards, whatever the cost. And that, you know, you, okay, and it sounds spiritual and ethereal and great and wonderful until, you know, we're in those kind of, and many of you, you know, if you have your own business, you set the standard. If you're, you're in a company that has high ethical standards and it's, it's monitored well, lots of accountability, you probably don't have to be particularly concerned. But I do know, because I've talked to a lot of guys over the years, they're in situations like that. And it's almost to the point I either have to leave or I have to do what they're asking me to do. And then you've got to make that decision. So, And Peter is just saying, you know, consider Jesus. Um, Jesus suffered injustice. Jesus did not revile. He did not retaliate because he knew the Lord, was, his father, was going to work this out. And so it's just that, that spirit by which we respond. So it's almost time. Well, actually, it is time to stop. So it's almost time. So this is good. Now, next week, I, what I'm really doing, I'm hoping that Jesus comes back before next week. Because <laughs> I don't want to deal with this chapter. This is um, wives and husbands. But the unique thing is what Peter says, what, the way Peter does this. And I am so thankful this is not a broad-based class where husbands and wives both come to the class. It's only for men. Because there's only one verse that deals with husbands, but there are six verses. My wife asked the question, is there any women in that class? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very, it's like a, uh, there are women's Bible studies and there are men's Bible studies. We're gender-specific. But this is hard. This is really, because... When you, if you haven't read First Peter three one through six, I mean, I want to read it for next week, and reading it from the context of pure twenty first century, I mean, this is provocative, revolting, and thoroughly countercultural. 
but we have to put it in the right context to understand it. So I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to draw some things on the board and try to um, present it in a way that I think accurately reflects the point Peter's trying to make. But this, I mean, some of the language here is really, you know, like with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You know, the implications of that in the 21st century. So, Lord willing, he'll come so I don't have to deal with this next week. <laughs> and if he doesn't come, I may be sick next week. So. <laughs> but we'll deal with it, Lord willing. Lord, thank you for these men. And we're dealing with, in these last two weeks, we're dealing with some very significant subjects that Peter's addressing that really hit at the heart of who we are. This morning, what we dealt with was really in the workplace. And, um, Lord, I thank you so much for men and women of integrity and bosses, relationships and workplace and managers and CEOs. But, Lord, there are also a lot of companies and businesses where the bosses and managers and CEOs are not ethical. They're not always righteous. They're more interested in values and virtues and standards that are pretty antithetical to what you stand for. But we represent you in that kind of a situation. And I do not know a lot of these men very well. I don't know what they have been through in their life. I don't even know what they're facing. But it is not unusual to face these kinds of issues in the workplace. We're being asked to do things that are unethical. We're being asked to do things that are wrong. We serve, we, we, we obey, we, we are consistent because you're our boss. But there are times when we're being asked to do something that's wrong. How do we respond to that? One of the character issues that's clear in the scriptures is we think beforehand what we're going to do. We, we work through in our minds and in our hearts what are we going to do in those kinds of situations. How will I respond? So anyway, I just pray your blessing on the men in this issue. Help them to just think through this. And if it's necessary, to apply it to their lives in specific circumstances. But it draws back again to the major point of so much of this. We are transformed people, being transformed into the image of Christ. We are different because we follow the Lord Jesus. And those who have not yet accepted him are not following the Lord Jesus. So there are always going to be differences. And we're not approaching it from an arrogant way. We're approaching it with great humility because we represent you. Help us to represent you well in what we do and in what we say. And I ask your blessing and enablement on these men to be the men of God you want them to be. In Christ's name, amen.